Hi, this is Jim Barton. I'm here with... Reverend Abigail Conley. And this is another episode of Bloody Mary Bible Brunch. So, uh, today is October 12th, which means yesterday was National Coming Out Day, and um, we're talking about sex in the Bible, and so we're going to spend this time to talk about gay, lesbian, bisexual, and transgender folks, and what the Bible has to say in that regard. So, um, I do want to start off by just sort of talking about some current events that I think actually are not super relevant to our conversation, um, and, and one of them is this idea of how to treat um, gay people in the marketplace, and not the marketplace of ideas, but literally the marketplace. So, you know, we've had cases that say that you don't have to make cakes for gay people, you don't have to make invitations for gay people. Um, we now have a case in front of the United States Supreme Court about whether you can fire someone because they're gay, or you can fire someone because they're transgender. Um, and... In a way, that's a very, very big issue because it affects people's lives in a very literal sense. I'm an employment lawyer, and I know that when you take away someone's employment, that impacts them profoundly. But in another way, it's kind of a small question because it just really goes to whether or not it's legal for someone else to be a terrible person. And so it's possible the court will say it's legal for people to be terrible people. And I don't know. We can fight that on our own time. But here we're talking about... Is it good and right for someone to be gay? Is it okay for someone to be gay? Are gay people people? And that's a fairly biased way to put that question, so you can guess that we say yes to all those. But anyway, that's kind of the context of that we're moving forward in. And so, as a first step in sort of talking about the big, the bigger question of uh, goodness and virtue, I guess, um, I'm going to kick it over to Abby to kind of talk a little bit about this distinction between identity and behavior uh, and, you know, conduct versus personal identity and things like that. So this is one of those kind of places where our culture breaks from biblical understanding. The Bible is very concerned with behavior. Is a man having a sex with a man? It is notable that it is overwhelming, more, more concerned with men's sexual behavior in relation to other men than women's sexual behavior toward other women. Whereas in our culture, we are concerned with identity, particularly um, there are plenty of people who find themselves as part of the LGBTQ plus community who would say, well, I'm asexual. Well, my gender identity or my sexual identity matters to who I am apart from relationships. It matters that I'm gay even if I never act on it. It matters that I'm bi even if I end up in a heterosexual relationship. Similarly, um, Gender identity is one of those things that informs our relationship, but is how we both experience and occupy the world. Um, and there is a wide spectrum of gender. Um, and even within genders, we already naturally understand a wide spectrum. If you go for a binary version of gender and say they're male and female, well, I definitely fall a little bit more on the masculine end of feminine and I'm married to someone who falls more on the feminine end of masculine. And so we're used to kind of play within that, but we're talking about something that we're understanding is ever-expansive within identity, that um, how you identify in the world, um, how you experience the world, how you want to present yourself to the world matters, um, and is something that is deeply important to who we are as people. And these are... The, this concept, the distinction between who am I? Mm -hmm. Am I gay? Am I straight? Mm -hmm. Am I bisexual? What is my gender? Is it male? Is it female? Am I gender non-conforming? Does, does my gender is my gender fluid? Mm -hmm. 
because these relate to the human condition, I think, in truth, these questions have always been present, as long as there's been humans. Right. But to the extent they've been addressed by the larger culture, I think is a more recent, mm-hmm. a more recent occurrence. And I think that, frankly, there's a lot of people who are like, well, what do you mean they were born male, but their, their true gender is female? What, you mean they just decided to dress like a woman? And like, you know, people that are not intending to be vicious necessarily, but that just haven't haven't thought about their assumptions. Right. And um, don't realize the engagement of, you know, trans people's brains tend to mirror their gender identity, not their genetic gender. Right. And those sorts of things that become very complicated for how we understand this. Because um, the other thing, too, is that this is what we just, what you just said is you're talking about an individual person and how that individual person relates to the community, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas in scripture, the overwhelming bulk of what scripture is talking about is corporate identity. Mm-hmm. It's talking about how it is how people relate, like it gives, it gives um, restrictions on behaviors of individuals. But the target is about identity of the of the whole, the corporate identity. Right. And, and setting them apart as having a corporate identity. Um, this is your right. God. These are your rules that will look very different from the people around you. Um, and so, in some ways, we're wrestling with our individualistic culture versus a corporate culture. And those different expectations um, within those things. So... The point being is that we think, and, and by the way, I did want to just like real quickly point out that, you know, so what I, our point here is that a lot of what we're going to talk about, and we will talk about the clobber verses where they sort of go through and say, you know, how terrible it is to be, uh, to have sex with a man if you're a man and all that. Um, those verses are really talking about something different than being gay. Mm-hmm. And I did want to point out that this isn't just um, a criticism that we reserve for um, topics that liberals don't like, like being mean to gay people is not something we're in favor of. Um, you know, we were mentioning before, you know, illegal immigration is not in the Bible. The mm-hmm. Bible talks about how to treat a foreigner in your land. It doesn't say anything about what do you do about someone who crosses the border illegally. It's not a concept in Scripture. Right. Um, progressive tax rate is not in Scripture. Eminent domain is not in Scripture. Frankly, the Regulating I, carbon emissions regulating, is not in Scripture. Right. Limiting industry for the sake of the environment, it's not in Scripture. Now, you want to say, well, there's a fallow field, da 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 Well, first off, that's not required, mm-hmm. right? And the point is that there are values that we get from Scripture that informs all of those things. Every one of those topics that we just said, for me, is informed by my faith and by Scripture. But but I have to admit, I have to acknowledge that the, the issue is not squarely considered. Mm-hmm. And so as we go through this, that's one of the things that we want to recognize is that the idea of being gay, of being transgender, of being bisexual, those ideas are not present in Scripture. That's not what it's mm-hmm. talking about. No. So... In the quest for talking about identity, one of the places that we want to start is with the Galatian scripture, Galatians 3, uh, 28. And this it's unusual for us to talk about a single scripture. But Abby, you want to read that, and then we can talk about what that means to this conversation. Yeah, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And so... And that, I think, fairly captures the, the, the concept that you get from, from Galatians, mm-hmm. which is the idea that we are we have an identity, sure, but really we're all one in Christ. Mm-hmm. And I think that when we're talking about people, um, 
Uh, you, how can you condemn someone because they're slave or free? How can you condemn someone because they're gay or straight? You can't if we're all one in Christ. Right. And I think that it's one of those places that we also, you know, liberals tend to not condemn people very much, which yeah. becomes one of those struggles of like, you know, um, one of the jokes of what's your favorite sign to take as a Christian to like a Trump rally is repent assholes. Uh-huh. So it's like, okay, yeah, you're, you're Christian. You, you need to repent. So we're moving beyond that to say this conversation is, but we don't say you need to repent of being gay, of being trans, right. of figuring out something else. Um, and that, that in itself is something that is, is very different in our conversation versus broader versus some other conversations. And I think it's it is interesting because this even this scripture is is taking the point that your individualistic identity is not the end of the conversation, mm-hmm. and so um, there's something cool about that too, right? Is that we can being one in the body of Christ is a very profound Christian idea of um, of not not like um, you know we talk about these different levels, right? Of like, well, you tolerate someone because they're different. Mm-hmm. Then I think, well, you accept someone because they're different, and then you recognize your oneness with that person despite their differences. Right. And I think that is the exciting sort of goal that the Galatians, that's Paul. We think Paul wrote Galatians, right? Yeah, Paul actually wrote Galatians. That's a real, it's a real yeah. Paul. Um, so, you know, when Paul's talking about this, this is about this vision that Paul has of all Christians being one. And I think that being one in the body of Christ. And I think that a part of that is something much more profound than acceptance. Mm-hmm. This is why I think, you know, we talked about the the, legis- the um, legal work up front. A lot of the legal work that's been done for uh, LGBT rights has been done around there's no um, legitimate basis. Like, it's not a rational basis to discriminate. In other words, the courts have said it's just stupid to discriminate against mm-hmm. people because they're gay in a lot of cases. Mm-hmm. Um we're saying more than that. We're saying we're not just saying it's just stupid to discriminate against someone because they're gay. We're saying we love you. Mm-hmm. You're gay, and we love you. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what we get out of this. Regardless of who you are, regardless of your identity, we love you. Um, okay, so now I want to talk about um, the idea of you know is are there gay people in the Bible? And uh, I just said that the Bible didn't have the idea of gayness, and I think that's right. Mm-hmm. There are people who have gay sex, um, uh, oftentimes with angels, weirdly enough, but anyway, that want to have gay sex with angels. But um, are there gay people? I have a friend who was at a church once where someone just posed, what if he was one of us? And they just suggested, what if Jesus was gay and that's why he didn't have a wife? Mm-hmm. It was a church that was only attended by gay people and three people walked out. Three gay men walked out at the at a sermon <laughs> titled, what if? And it's, it's like the John Lennon song, right? It right. wasn't saying, it wasn't... It was the thesis wasn't Jesus was gay. It was what if he was? Well, I don't know whether Jesus was gay or not. I think it's interesting he didn't take a wife. I don't think that's evidence that he's gay necessarily. Um, but we do have the character, the relationship between David and Jonathan. And you want to give us a little background, and then I'll I'll read the yeah zinger here at the end. So um, David and Jonathan were kind of set up to be rivals to the throne um, of Saul, of Saul, first king, right? Because a different king was chosen, and Saul um, was Jonathan's dad, so it's presumably, you know, he gets to be king, but he falls out of favor with God, and so David is anointed king instead. And despite the fact that there should be some animosity toward them, toward each other between David and Jonathan, 
Instead, they end up very good friends, at least, um, and very protective um, protective of each other. They sneak around behind Saul's back, right? They sneak around behind Saul's back in order to be friends. They um, find each other um, when Jonathan hears that his dad is going to kill David. He works very hard to protect him and make sure he knows he should run away and hide for a while. There's some business with clothes. I think Jonathan gives David his clothes. Mm -hmm. Again, I don't know. It's trading of clothes. I don't. I'm trade. I've traded no clothes with any of the men I've been friends with. All right, and then there's this. this and then eventually, um, uh, Saul is killed and Jonathan dies at the same time. Mm -hmm. And David is lamenting Saul's death. Mm -hmm. And this is the end of this lament. And this is from Second Samuel chapter one or two. And it goes like this. This is David talking. How the mighty have fallen in battle. Jonathan lies slain on our heights, on your heights. I grieve for you, Jonathan, my brother. You were very dear to me. Your love for me was wonderful, more wonderful than that of a woman, of women. How the mighty have fallen, the weapons of war have perished. So there's this, and it's much, much longer. This is just the very end of it. There's this long, heartfelt lament for this uh, man who died whose, one, whose love was more wonderful than that of women. Um, it doesn't do anything to debunk the idea that they had a relationship that was more than a friendship relationship. It doesn't. And um, what I would actually say is that with this sort of example kind of making it in out of something that wasn't understood that becomes much more compelling, actually, that there was something more there. Yeah, that's a not. test. Right, that's a test. If there's something in the scripture that doesn't feel like it fits, like, ugh, why would they tell that story? Like, we talked about how, like, how patriarchal, particularly the fake Paul letters are. So the later stuff, you saw a real patriarchy taking over the Christian movement towards the end. That's why the later epistles have such an anti-woman bias, right? Right. Those same guys left in all these stories of women, of Lydia, of uh, Mary Magdalene. Because they couldn't. Of, you they, can't tell a story of that. It's like, oh, right. shit, I guess we got to tell that story. And with this one, one of even this translation is interesting, more wonderful, because the older translation translation is actually, your love surpasses that of a woman. Surpass that of a woman. This, is, this yeah. is even better. Even better, yeah. Okay. Um, which, you know, later down the road we'll get it, the concept of filial love and how this like surpasses philosophically romantic love. Right. But at this point in time, that's not there. Right. And I pointed out, I also, I'm not going to read it, but I also, Iliad book, uh, book uh, 18 has uh, Achilles uh, mourning uh, Patroclus, Patroclus, Patroclus. And he's not nearly as, like, uh, sentimental about it. I mean, he's much more like, oh, you killed my friend and all these friends, and now it's the turning point. You hear the music swell, and now Achilles is going to go into battle. And that's the kind of thing. Is like, now you killed his maybe lover, and now that's that's what got Achilles to go into battle. This isn't, like, firing up David to go into battle. This is David mourning deeply this loss of a person whose love, he says, exceeds that of wonder. Um, all right, well... There's not too much more. Have we missed any other um, LGB greatest hits from the Bible? No. There are. So, we do have to now, I do think it's worthwhile for us to go through and talk about 
the scriptures that are used to basically attack LGBT folks. And um, the first one that I have down here is uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, which is a story that I think we've talked about before. We had talked about before. We talked about the context of rape. Right. Because that's, I mean, (laughs) later, by the way, the commentary on this that has to do with being nice is not some recent biblical commentator. It's Ezekiel, right? Right. The prophet Ezekiel says it has to do with... Uh, the prophet Ezekiel says Sodom's sin was failure to show hospitality. Yeah. Not anything to do with sodomy, That <coughs> even though it comes from the name of that city. Right, right, that's right. Just to be clear. And so that's, the, that's not, like I said, that's not a recent <coughs> liberal theologian. That's the Old Testament prophet Ezekiel. Right. Um... And then, but of course, other people have gone back, and other. I think there's later um, in the epistles. I think they, they do talk about it as being. They go back to thinking that's about uh, gay sex. Um, it's also maybe like about rape. Yeah. Like I mean, you know, <laughs> I don't, let's talk about the problems <laughs> like, in here that have nothing to do with a man having sex I with. Yeah, a I feel like the, I feel like it's it, that's pretty much the awfulness of it. Yeah. And I mean. Um, I went ahead and wrote down the Levite's concubine because it's a very similar story where they came banging at the door asking to rape someone, and again they throw the women out to be raped. So I'm not—I don't understand how the takeaway from that story is to be against consensual gay sex. Right. Like that's a weird. I just—I don't even put that on that. That doesn't make yeah. any sense to me. So now, the, the next one, um, well, it is 1822. You should not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. First of all, so is shrimp. Right. As far as we consider abominations. And let us consider the fact that this is so socially located that if you read it, if it is a woman reading it to woman, it is a call to be a lesbian. Correct. Right. So that's... And, and that seems very flippant at first. It does. Right. But so, however, it does point out that the scripture is intended to be written... To a man, mm-hmm. right? Like, like you said. So, if you, as a woman, read it, hey, Abby, if you lie with a man the way you would lie with a woman, that's an abomination. Mm-hmm. That does sound like well, then you should be a lesbian because mm-hmm. it says so right there in Leviticus eighteen twenty two. Okay. Obviously, we're playing a game. Well, yeah, but the game that we're playing is based on the fact that we know that this scripture was written towards men. Right. So it's also was written towards straight men. Mm-hmm. And it is written in such a specific time that we would assume women are not in the hearers, which is just absurd in any of our churches. <laughs> right. We also would assume that gay men are not in the hearers. Right. Because we wouldn't accept that there would be gay men. Right. Right. So, um, I, I do think, um, I do think that that, I think that's the most profound difference. I, you know, the, so is shrimp. Well, what about the thing where he said, well, kill and eat? Mm-hmm. Well, nobody in that story thought that kill and eat blanket thing was about uh, not keeping kosher because they continue to argue about what they eat about everybody right. who read that scripture thought it was talking about something else yeah. so they thought about what you eat the whole New Testament right and whether you had to keep kosher or not so that, evidently Jesus didn't settle on keeping kosher so there are other things like you know there are other rules laws that are not um, considered mm-hmm. um, in, but let's before we leave the Old Testament did the Hebrew law prohibit gay sex yes or no I don't think they cared about it. You don't. They, well, you don't. You don't think they cared about it. As long as you. Well, this. There's two places that say it. Just those two places. And so you think because they're so fewly mentioned that it wasn't that important. So. Because we know that not all the Levitical laws are followed, right? Like we know that not all the. Is not followed. There's lots of Levitical laws that we know are not followed. 
here is what I think. If in all, the whole of scripture, you get two verses where you can say, the you want Torah. a hard answer, right? Yeah. Torah. Do, do they care? Do they, are they that worried about this? The answer is no. You know what they were worried about? Skin disease. <laughs> like, you know what they are worried about? That's what nice. you eat. That's a really nice So point. is there a law? Yes. Is this in any way a transformative shaping the community law? Hell no. All right. That's a great point. So I would have said yes, but you're right. You, that's an excellent, excellent point. Skin disease, way, way. We tried to read it in church the other day, and I couldn't even get through it. It was so long. Like, yeah. All the sacrifices Chapters and chapters so, on skin disease. So fair enough. That's a really good point. They have similarly about not dressing like a woman. Mm-hmm. Also is an Old Testament rule. Mm-hmm. We're going to talk about that at the, at the, at the back end. But okay. Now we're going to talk about the Protestant. I mean, we're talking about the Protestant. The New Testament. So in Corinth... The time. Oh, you just okay. In, that's okay. In Corinth, we said, um, um, uh, "Do not do like the wrongdoers. Um, do not be deceived." And this is what they don't like: neither the sexual morality, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor greedy. And they go on all these other people that are bad. Um, one thing is, even the NIV, which is a pretty conservative translation, has to point out that the words men who have sex with men, it actually translates to both a passive and an active participant in a gay sex act. Mm-hmm. And a male, two men having sex. A pitcher and a catcher, if you will. Mm-hmm. And so that's very interesting to me because it just shows you how much like the culture, the Hellenistic culture this came out of, was making distinctions that maybe we don't so much make anymore. Right. I, I don't know. I haven't been to a gay bar, but I mean, I'm just, well, I haven't been to a gay bar, but I haven't been to a gay bar looking for gay sex, so I'm not sure. Um, I suppose they probably do make the distinction. Mm-hmm. The point being is, it's a it's a distinction that we don't make. And so um, we have this one. We have the one in Timothy that is the same. We have one. Well, let's let's hold off on um, Jude. So, what do we make of these restrictions on gay sex? First off. I think they're talking... They're, do you think they're talking about gay sex? I think they are. They are. I think they're also talking about gay sex of men with young boys because yeah. of the cultural location of this text. Yes. So, in that case, would I affirm that a 30-year-old man having sex with a 15-year-old boy is wrong? Yes. Yes. Um, also, what did the authors of the epistles think about sex in general? They weren't fans. They weren't right? fans. Like they really were upset about the... They were really upset about sex in general. And if you're really a good Christian, then it might be a good idea to just not have sex because Jesus is coming back at any point. As a matter of fact, that's the only reason to get married is if, if mm-hmm. you're going to have sex out of marriage anyway. Mm-hmm. All right, we talked about that at the beginning. Yeah. So, yeah, that says that. And, um, but this is where they, they're, I just don't trust them when they talk about sex. They're just, they, they're, they're not, they're just untrustworthy. They've not proven themselves, the authors of the epistles have not proven themselves trustworthy on sex. Mm-hmm. Now in Jude, we have this thing. Oh, this is what we were talking about before. In Jude, they do talk about how um, bad the guys were at Sodom and Gomorrah um, because they were surrounding the, the town and trying to give themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. Again, I would count rape in there. Seems like rape is what that's about. I also should point out that um, we're going to talk about this more in the December, but it also says, and the angels who did not keep their position of authority but abandoned their proper dwelling, these he has kept in the darkness, bound with everlasting claims of judgment for the great day. Just so I just FYI, as long as we're, I mean, you got to you got to also accept there's some like jail full of angels mm-hmm. if you're going to go with the author of Jude. So that's that's a lot of baggage for me. 
Yeah, Jude makes the Bible because it has a really, really amazing benediction. It does. Well, that's good <laughs> with the bad. Um, and then the last one here is um, is about prostitutes. It's a little bit of it's a, the Romans. They don't like they don't like prostitutes. Mm-hmm. This is uh, this is important because this is um, finally the lesbians get a little bit of um, attention. Even the women exchange natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. So I think that's um, you know just in case the lesbians are feeling that. Um, I think prostitution is different than sex in general, and I stand by my sort of discounting what the epistles authors have to say about sex because I don't trust them. All right, but it does say it. Yeah. Okay. So you know, I mean, frankly, if we were living in an area where we had the jubilee every seven years, we forgave all the debt, and if everyone gave away all their money to the poor, and if um, we never took advantage of anyone. And then also we had restrictions on um, who we could have sex with. Actually, I don't know. I still don't know if I would. I, I still don't think I like that. Perhaps Let's be do more. That first. On, right. <laughs> All right. That I think is actually worth what I said with the Old Testament of like, did they, did they really care about gay sex? The answer, my answer is no. They had one rule about it out of a whole bunch of rules. Yeah. If you look at the weight of scripture and the number of texts you can find about it, why are we talking about this so much more than we're talking about what we're doing to poor people? Right. Why are we talking about this so much more than, like, how we reconcile conflict? Right. Like, why are we not talking about, like, hey, billionaires, you're going to get to keep 10% of your money and no more. Mm-hmm. Because that's actually what's moral. Right. Yes. Exactly. And frankly, um, even though there is, I think we have to acknowledge more of an obsession with sexuality in the New Testament. Frankly, it's as much about premarital sex or adultery or like you said just sex in general I mean they're real I mean the shakers didn't they I mean frankly they backed up in the scripture their whole idea of no sex it's just it's not a good it's not good for the movement right alright let's talk about we have talked very little about trans folks but we we do I did mention briefly there is scripture about not dressing like a woman mm-hmm. there's um, scripture in the New Testament actually uh, Paul talks about keeping his hair short which is awkward because we don't have any reason to believe Jesus kept his hair short right um, so that's too bad um, Culturally, Jesus probably didn't have long hair. Did or did not? Did not. Oh, he did not because the, he would have lived in the he probably period right. in the okay. probably would have had a beard relatively neatly trimmed. Um, probably not long hair, but all of those things are guesswork okay. at best. Yeah. So because there is stuff about not cutting your hair. There is stuff it, about as a not Nazarene, cutting your hair. he shouldn't have cut his hair, right? If he had been a Naz, if he had taken a Nazarite vow. Okay. Being a Nazarene from the city of Nazareth is not the same as a Nazarite vow. Uh, fair enough. Um, but yeah, so there is the verse about like women keep their head covered, it's shameful, those sorts of things. Right, right, right. So if you grow up in certain religious contexts, that becomes some gender essentialism. That women have to wear skirts. I think you should tell the story about the age of whatever, about you not cutting your hair. Right, so the age of consent. So in the broader Stone Camel movement. the age movement, of consent. Well, age of understanding. Yeah. Yeah. Um, different. Right. Age of understanding. Um, and that, actually, there's a different term that's escaping my mind. Mm-hmm. But anyway, mm-hmm. where, um, age of accountability. accountability. That's there it. it is. Right. When you can be held accountable for your actions. So this is around the time when we would baptize children. So somewhere around 10 or 15, if you're old enough to be baptized, then you're also old enough to be held accountable for your sins. And so before that, you know, you're innocent. So... You have to reach that age of accountability before you can choose if this is a sin or not. So I was one of the people, I had really long hair um, until I was going into sixth grade. 
when I finally said I want my hair cut. And I was old enough then to make that decision because if that was sin, then I took that to myself and my parents were not making that sinful decision for me. So if you had been eight mm-hmm. and wanted to have your hair cut, and they your said parents yes. would have said no. Right. Wait until you're old enough to make that right. risk. Because yes. it could be sinful. Because it's you're not according to the New Testament, you're not supposed to cut your hair. Right. Now keep in mind my mom's hair was always like actually like shaved on the back. Yeah. Like my mom she, she, had short hair her she entire life. She was taking the risk. She was taking the risk. She was good with it, but you don't do that for your Just children. Just like you don't start smoking until you're like ten or right. eleven, anyway. Right. Right. All right. So you know, my more conservative, like kind of godparents, they not only I never wore pants to church because you know that was immoral. Outside mm-hmm. of church was fine. They never wore pants at all. The women. Yeah. And they covered their heads in church, and the men and women sat on opposite sides. Right. So. It is that culture then and those references that create this gender essentialism that becomes a very feminine, you must have long hair, you must wear skirts, you must do all of these sorts of things that don't fit with cultural feminism then, or cultural femininity. Because like these are the same women who is like, well, you're wearing jean skirts with tennis shoes. It's just a bad fashion statement. (laughs) It doesn't scream feminine versus... The person in leggings and boots and, like, that is kind of our cultural ideal of feminine at this point. So it creates a very weird kind of thing about what gender identity looks like and what it means to present as a certain gender. And I think the counterpoint to that, to these scriptures that we talked about, is creating an image of God. Yeah. And the idea that even if you go back, and frankly, if you want to look very closely at the Genesis scripture, Mm -hmm. um, what is it? We Let us create them in our image. Yeah, let us um, create humanity in our image. Um, in the beginning, God created. I'm getting God created humanity in God's own image. In the divine image, God created them. Male and female, God created them. So the point being that those are repeating verses. Mm-hmm. It, those are mean the same thing. Because that's how Hebrew poetry works. It's a donkey and a colt and a foal or whatever. Mm-hmm. Like that's the same animal. Right. It's unnecessary to make Jesus write in on two animals. Right. Stupid, but, stupid gospel authors. Anyway, so in this case, you have the point being that humans were created male, female, mm-hmm. and we've talked in briefly before, but there's a fun idea that maybe they actually were uh, androgynous to start. Right. One being. And but in any case, they're. But that, the point is, humanity was created in God's image, yes. and the way we under. And, a synonymous way of saying that is male and female is humanity. Yes. So that is, you get a binary gender understanding early, but the point is, all of the humans were made in God's image. All the humans were made in God's image. The gender, gender non-conforming person, mm-hmm. that, their gender is a part of who they are, even if it's non-conforming, and that is in the image of God. Mm-hmm. And we don't get to come around back end and say, well, that image of God's no good. Right. And... And I think for us living where we are, the image of God born into every person regardless matters. This matters when we talk about disabilities. It matters when we talk about race. It matters when we talk about gender. It matters when we talk about refugees. Every single person bears the image of God, and you do not get to hurt the image of God. Right. All right. We're we're running long. I'm just going to very quickly plug a couple of things. Um... The Lynn Marie Tonstad's Queer Theology is an amazing book that talks about these things. Frankly, she talks about most we talked about in chapter two of the book. She's like, obviously you shouldn't be mean to gay people. Here's why. And she just like real quick rattles off this amazing list of how stupid it is and how hypocritical it is to try and discriminate against someone based on their orientation or their gender. But most of the book is about is about effectively dismantling essentialism, the idea that we're born with some essential 
uh, right way to be mm-hmm. and um, denaturalizing our perspective. And it's it's such an amazing, profound book. I just really sort of does a great job of sort of deconstructing all the bullshit preconceived notions we have in our head. It's amazing. We then also talked about... Um, I specifically talked about Miguel de la Torre, um, the book that we're reading that is A Lily Among the Thorns that we have read. It talks a lot about our goal with relationships is familial connections. We are creating families. Those look a lot of different ways and those sorts of things, but it really lays out the framework for what are we talking about when we talk about healthy relationships that the church is good and should bless. And so these are two deeply faithful people mm-hmm. that have written really powerful and profound books. I think that um, Tonstead's book is so amazing because, like I said, it sort of deconstructs things in a really compelling and powerful way. And then, and then De La Torre, I think, like puts the pieces back together and says, "Hey, this is why. Here's what we mean about relationship. This mm-hmm. is why. This is why it matters." Yeah. So, all right. Well, we covered a lot of stuff, um, uh, running a little bit long, but that's okay. It's an important topic, um, and um, we'll be back. Uh, our next one, we have to talk about the terrible, um, we're going to talk about Battered Love. I don't remember the author of that one right now, but we're going to talk about the book Battered Love, and we're going to look at all of the horribleness that the prophets have uh, used to describe a unfaithful Israel as an unfaithful spouse, and it's not going to be fun. But anyway, um, until we get to that, uh, until next time, cheers.